I had uh, planned to talk about something, but before I do that, I need to talk about this question. Thank you, Kristen. I've opened a can of worms, and I'm going to do my very best to put a lid on that can of worms so that you know why we are where we are and that sort of thing. So what is the difference between these theologies, Wesleyanism, and and I'm going to do my best to sort of come over here and say Wesleyan things, and I'll do my best to come over here and try to give a fair presentation to Calvinistic things. Okay, just want you to know that when I went to seminary, I was not a Wesleyan. I came to Christ at a Baptist church. Many Baptist church are Calvinistic, and I was a Calvinist. And I went to a seminary where Calvin was taught. And under a very famous Calvinist, I became a Wesleyan. And he would change my assignments for systematic theology around. He'd say this sort of thing. So some of you have heard his name. His name's J.I. Packer. He wrote a book called Knowing God way back in the 80s. And that was part of the beginning. Um, There was about 15 years where if J.I. Packer or R.C. Sproul didn't say yes to the publication of your book as a Christian, it didn't get published in America. That's how famous and sort of descriptive they were. Anyway, he would say to me in class, everybody, don't forget your assignment is due. It's coming up. It's this and this. But Dave, your assignment is this, and these are five books you need to read. Oh, and Bob, your assignment is this. And he would do that in a class of 30 people, and there would be like five people. He would adjust the assignment because he knew what we were doing and knew what was going on in our lives. That's an amazing sort of teacher, wouldn't you agree? Okay, so I went over here, and what is the difference between these two very human-born theologies? The place where I came to understand the difference right here in the middle is the cross. And the argument is made essentially in, in my understanding, and you could disagree with me, and I'm more than willing to take this up over coffee or something like that with you. But the difference to me was made at how the cross was understood as efficient. Now, you're not used to hearing the word efficient around the cross, are you? Efficiency, if you're running an AC, an air conditioning company or a heater company, is how much energy do you spend to get the result you're after. Am I right, Roger? That's essentially efficiency. So if you're 100% efficient, you spend one amount of energy, an erg, to get one degree change. Something like that. Maybe too technical for even my own good. So both sides, both Calvinistic sides and the Wesleyan side, agree that the cross is 100% efficient. Because, see, the cross accomplishes every single thing that it was meant to do. Does that, does everybody kind of agree on that spot? But if you agree on that spot and you ask, okay, if the cross is 100% efficient and it does everything it was meant to do, the Calvinist side, as I understand it, asked, okay, who does the cross save? And if you start with who, or how many, or something like that, you end up with a really strong emphasis, this is my understanding, 
on predestination. God saved every single person he intended to save. The cross is 100% efficient. Everybody that was going to be saved, that can be saved, was saved at the cross, by the cross. 100% efficiency. Do you understand where I'm going at? But if you ask a slightly different question and you ask, okay, so how does the cross accomplish that salvation? So it's a different question than who, but how. You end up with an understanding that the cross, and this is my words, not Karl Barth or any other famous theologian, but those that I've read, even Calvin, and I've read the Institutes, and I've read all of the Wesley things, and I've read all the Lutheran stuff, and I've read Vatican I and Vatican II. So it seems to me that the question here is this. How does the cross save? And if I were to use language that we understand, let's say you're running for public office, but you need to be nominated to get there. But you don't have a way to be nominated because they don't allow you to nominate yourself. Isn't that about the way many offices is? If you come up and you say, no, I'll do that, and people go, well, I'm not voting for them. He wants it too much. (laughs) The cross nominates or makes possible the salvation of every single human on earth by qualifying them for salvation. How does it do that? This is the way the Wesleyan thought is. It forgives the sin and makes it possible that everyone can be saved. Now that to me matches the biblical record much better than than only these ones. The problem over here for me is this, that if the Bible says it only, the cross is only good for every single person that was going to be saved, what about those that aren't going to be saved? Was the cross not meant for them? Did God create them? This is Dave's questioning. This is my process of switching from Calvinist to Wesleyan. Did the cross create them to be destroyed? Or did God create Billions of people in order to destroy them? Because that's not, that's not, to me, the, the answer to this question that God, God longs that they would all be saved, that everyone be, would be saved. But the reason it doesn't happen that way is that he won't force anybody to accept the nomination. The cross makes you clean if you'll take it. So from the Wesleyan standpoint, when I look at the Wesleyan standpoint over here, I see this emphasis on Calvin in, on predestination, that God knows everything. And, and you hear this language in Calvin over here, the hound of hell will come after you, right? That God's going to get you whether you like it or not. God's going to get you. It's kind of this thing. If you were meant to be saved, you will be saved. Okay, so how, how does that start to bug me if I'm over here? Well, it should bug you that, that the biblical witness isn't that God created billions of people to be destroyed and thrown away, and they only saved a few. That seems a little bit like the puppet master to me. 
and this, this dirty, this nasty underbelly of salvation, which is, well, I'm saved, but he actually never intended for everybody to be saved. Ow. Okay, so this is Dave's process over here. But, but, but God knows, I, I want to I say that predestination is not wrong. God knows everybody that will be saved. I want to say that from a Wesleyan standpoint over here. God knows the future. He knows what you will and won't do. The question in Wesleyanism is, will he force you to do something you don't want to do? There's the difference in this thing. So where is free will in Calvinism? Where does free will come in? God actually asks us to love him. And you can't love somebody if it's forced. That's not love. That's manipulation and all sorts of other things. And you've seen it in, in bad relationships around you when somebody tries to manipulate somebody into loving them. It ends up making a prisoner and not somebody that actually loves a free will. So if I'm over here, I want to emphasize that we, that Wesleyanism in this case put an emphasis on free will. Now it is important to know that the Calvinist, the Calvinist view of the Wesleyan is, well, you're antinomial. There's a fancy word, $5 word. Lawless. You're without the law. And Jesus says, I didn't come to negate the law, but to fulfill it. So how do you rectify that? Well, the trouble here is that you have to hold on to this concept over here of, of predestination, that God knows who will be saved, and the concept of freedom, that God actually wants people that love him and do it freely to choose him. And how does that happen? How do you hold that together? Now, you notice I'm not really in either camp at the moment completely, am I? Because if I hold on to these two concepts, it really puts me right here at the center where I would call centered on the word of God or centered on the cross, centered on our relationship with God. That he holds these two concepts together where we say, no, we're not antinomial. We have the rule of love and we don't negate his law in us but his law kept us as a schoolmaster until we came to the spot where we could understand this nomination per se for salvation but the charge against the Calvinists is all you have is this law and rule and you can see it kind of in the churches Sometimes you get in these churches and you'll see this, this emphasis on rule-keeping and law, right? Have, you, have you, anybody ever seen an emphasis on, well, you have to do it this way, and if you don't even dress right in these places? And, and I, one of my favorite sermon illustrations used to be, and I don't know if it's true anymore, but when I became a pastor, there was a church in the Tri-Cities still, that had a ruler in the front entryway, door jam, for how long women's skirts ought to be. Kind of an overemphasis on rule keeping, wouldn't you say? So let, let me 
deal with this salvation question, that this nomination, this 100% of the efficiency of the cross, I think that we could all pretty much agree on this, don't you? That the cross actually does accomplish everything God intended it to do. Now, the problem with humans is, is we often struggle a little bit to understand exactly what God was doing with it. And as we do that, I think a little grace on both sides is pretty necessary to this because each side has something really important. Yes, God knows who's going to be saved. That doesn't actually mean that he's not calling out for more. That it doesn't break it. Doesn't it break your heart when salvation doesn't seem to be recognized by somebody you deeply love and care for. No, I don't want it. It breaks my heart. Um, Many of you have talked to me about this thing, and I'll just tell you, I have family members myself that have told me, I don't want you to talk about this again ever to me. I really want this freedom of the cross, this salvation, not antinomialism, but this rule of the law inside of me creates this love to be obedient, not because there's a set of rules on the door jam or something like that, but because I don't want to disappoint the one that I love so much. Now, that doesn't make me antinomial or without the law. That means that I submit to the law out of obedience, not because there's a penalty involved. Does that sort of answer the question about Calvinism versus Wesleyanism and how they do? Does anybody, have I, have I kind of closed up that can of worms just a little bit? So where do I stand? Is Wesley completely right? People joke about Wesley. Well, he's all muddled. Matter of fact, my systematic theology pastor used, or professor used to actually say, Wesley is muddled. In other words, we don't really know what he did, believed because he wrote one thing and then he would write another and all this other stuff. Well, the truth of the matter is, is John Wesley kept a journal. And in his journal, he actually wrote his struggles with theology to come to a spot of understanding. And so because of that, if all those things are published all over the place, what, how would you feel if your personal journal of struggle was published and people said, well, who knows what he believes or she believes? How would you feel about that? See, we don't have that stuff. We don't have that moment in Calvin's life where he's going, well, I don't know what to believe here. But one of the things that both of them, extremely learned men, both of them in arguments at the time. So when you read their material, you can't just read them and say, well, that fits in the 21st century, just perfect. It doesn't. John Calvin was in an argument in a world that essentially said you're a member of society because you were baptized at birth. You're a member of the community of Christ and The world's government has rule over you because you're in Christ. And right in the middle of that, John Calvin's in this argument with a group called Anabaptists who say, those infant baptisms are completely useless unless it's a believer baptism. And what was happening was is that people were saying, well, your baptism is no good. And what what everybody in the world was hearing was, the fabric of our community is coming apart because what happens 
when your membership in the society is based on your membership in the body of Christ, which is based upon this baptism, but also you have a feudal system where everybody's loyalty to the one up above them is, is part of that. And so when they said, I, I wasn't part of this community of Christ until I had a believer baptism, and so none of my fealty vows made sense. And you actually had a holy Roman emperor excommunicated by a pope over this. I'm not telling you that this was a small argument. But Calvin was in the middle of that argument. And so when you read him, be aware that he's trying to also, as a lawyer, because he is a lawyer, he's trying to win an argument. Have you ever over-argued your point when you were trying to win an argument? Me too. What I found in John Wesley was a synthesizer of many different theological points. You can't understand John Wesley without understanding, just knowing that he was influenced by reading Eastern Orthodox theology, which has salvation as a community sort of understanding as well as a personal one. And the German pietists uh, deeply affected him. Well, who are the German pietists? This is the little bit of the history stuff that seems really dry, except for the German pietists did something in Europe that nobody else ever did before them. Hospitals and orphanages. It was the German pietists that did that stuff. Hospitals and orphanages, the very first people to start orphanages in Europe were the German pietists. They said, look, it's important that these people not be thrown away, that this social justice sort of stuff happens. That's a big deal to us, isn't it? How many of our hospitals are faith-based creations in our world? You know that? We don't have a problem with living out our faith. We have a bad publicist. The faith community has really served the non-faith community very well in this way. But then you also have Count Zinzendorf, who came out of the German pietist thing and said, you know what's going on over here in the German pietist stuff is all they're focusing on social justice. There's no internal focus on what God is doing in them. And so you can't just be social justice warriors. You also need to look at the work of God in your own life. Both, so how do you hold those two together? Well, just like this other argument over here with predestination and free will, you have to balance and hold on to how do I work in my community and how is God working in my life? Because I hate to tell you this, this is my sermon illustration this morning. Did anybody notice that when they walked in the sanctuary this morning, you crossed a blue line? Did anybody notice the tape in the door jams? You had some tape, you had some discussions about it. Why? Guess what? If you, went to ch- if you decided to go to church today and you thought that you went to church because you managed to get in the sanctuary... Were you correct? Is that what church is about? That you got in the sanctuary? What if you decided to come to church today and you got all the way to the parking lot and just stayed out there? You were on the church grounds. Come on. And, and those of you who've been employers and bosses, how many of you want an employee that just came to work? 
but didn't do anything, just sat there. Was that what you hired them for? No, so the purpose isn't coming to church. That purpose isn't just coming to church. The purpose isn't getting inside the door. It's important to get in the door because it's really hard to do church without being here at church. But the church is not a building. The church is a group of people working out this issue in their lives, these issues in their life and how they live and learning how to forgive and learning how to love and learning how to care and doing all that and holding on to what, well, God knows what he's doing, but I have the freedom to do my own darn thing. How do I learn to trust him with my life? How do I learn to trust his knowledge? How do I learn to give in my community and actually make a difference and recognize that God isn't done with me yet? Do you see these tensions in the Christian life are really important, aren't they? You can't go, well, I just love this concept so much, I'll just hold on to this one. Because what you end up with is not balanced understanding of who God is. So why do I have this blue line in the doorway? The text this morning, the other service is probably going to get the full sermon I intended to give today. So I will give you the Cliff Notes version. You don't get the whole of it. But what's going on in 2 Samuel 5 is this. David is made king. I'll give you the cliff notes. Please read it. Do you know that as soon as he's made king over the whole thing, they make a covenant. They renew the covenant with the king. And he goes and he takes an unassailable fortress in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was... The Jebusites who owned Jerusalem or lived in Jerusalem thought, we've got this great big fortress. Nobody will attack us here because it's unassailable. And pretty much all the people around them had wars with each other and left them out because they had a fortress that was unassailable. By the way, that sounds remarkably similar to Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. But just before they went into the Battle of Jericho, the Israelites renewed their covenant. They renewed their covenant, and then God took an unassailable fortress. The rest of 2 Samuel 5 and David's story has him attacking two battles that, by the way, if you'll read Joshua 8, 9, and 10, are echoed exactly the same way, including the second battle, which God says, come at them from behind in all this stuff, that God is doing this re-entry into the kingdom of God for his people. He's renewing his covenant to give them the land. Did the Israelites think that just getting in the land made everything right? Like us? Well, I got to church, so I didn't really have to do anything there. God, I, all, all that was important was that I stood on the property for two hours. Is that the way you view church? That you just got to stand on the property for a while? Because there's a spot over there kind of in the grass with some shade in it. It's kind of a nice spot. But there's this call at the end of the text in 2 Samuel 5, where the people say to him, be a prince. You have always been a prince among us and a shepherd among us. Be our prince and our shepherd. And why did they not want him to be king? Because they just experienced a really bad king. 
who became, right, who started with the best of intentions and started out really well, but he became sort of a, a, a warlord and after his own interests, and he did all this stuff. And they said, well, but a prince among us is, doesn't really take all that authority on, but lives amongst us in a certain way and leads us, but doesn't have that final authority. Don't take the final authority of God away and become a king like the other nations. Sounds something like what we need. We need leaders that don't take that final authority out of the hands of God and do that. But to be a shepherd and guide us amongst us, they asked David, so why is it about growth? Whenever you see something in the Bible and it happens over and over and over again, this picture of entering the kingdom is not just enough. The truth of the matter is, is that we often think of ourselves as coming into the kingdom and salvation is all of it. But God's eyes are not just on your salvation. We don't say, I'm a salvation person. We say, "The, the, the hope of the Christian life is that you'd be a disciple. Saved and growing in. Come into the kingdom cross the blue line and don't just go, okay, I got there, I'm all good. Come and learn what it means and live into the life that gives you both both God's knowledge ahead of time and your freedom to go, oh, that's so good, I really want that. And pretty soon the disciples, the cry of the disciples' heart isn't, well, I want this, this, and this, but it becomes, I want every single thing God has for me, and I don't want anything that he doesn't have for me. And I just submit to that in love and care and doing that. Now, my alarm has gone off. It's time for me to do communion, but before we get any further, does anybody have any lingering questions about what we talked about today? Did I do okay? Do you understand where I'm at? (laughs) Okay. That was not planned, by the way. (sighs) So now we come to communion, this open table that I talked about, right? That we come to communion because Christ invites us. If you're here today, and maybe you're not a member of the United Methodist Church, it's okay. Because we don't limit it to just the body of Christ known as the United Methodists of Colville Community Church. We say, if you belong to Jesus or he's calling you, come. Come. Come do that. Cross the blue line in the doorway of the sanctuary. But don't just cross the blue line. Come in. Come into the kingdom. Live the kingdom life. Do that.